You may be seated. As we enter into God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. been chewing on this text for several, um, I think a month now. I think we've been on it for a month now. And we continue this morning in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. You know that part of you that you really don't want other people to see? That stubborn weakness, that humiliating failure, that embarrassing, embarrassing mistake, that horrible past event, or perhaps even a present struggle with sin. Whatever it is, you know that thing that you keep hidden? Luke, tells us, Luke 8 tells us of a desperate woman who also had something she wanted to be kept hidden. For 12 years, she had suffered from a vaginal hemorrhage. She's bleeding all the time. And all the medical treatments that she sought, every physician she went to, every doctor she consulted, all of them could not help her, and she had drained her entire life savings in vain, seeking for a cure. She found none, but she had seen Jesus' healing power. And she had seen that whenever he touched people, they were healed. And she thought to herself, if if she could just get to him, and if she could just have him touch her, then she would be healed. However, she had one problem, and her problem was the problem. Everyone who came to Jesus for healing spoke to him, told him who they were, what it was that they needed or wanted from him. But could she tell him of her physical illness in front of a crowd of men? I mean, there are going to be men there that will see this. The more she thought about it, the more reluctant she came. Her situation wasn't simply a medical condition. It was a bit of a social faux pas to boot. You see, her bleeding made her ceremonially unclean. And so she wasn't even able to enter into the temple and to worship God like all of the other sisters of Israel were welcomed to do. And this added to her an even deeper shame. It added to her an even deeper embarrassment. And so as she considered her situation, she thought to herself, wait a minute, maybe Jesus doesn't need to know that I've touched him at all, or that I've drawn near to him at all? What if if I just snuck up to him in the crowd? I wouldn't necessarily have to say anything to him. I could just sort of sneak up to him while the whole crowd and throng of people were pressing around him, and I'd be able to maybe just grab a hold of his garment, and I could be healed, and no one would ever know, and I could stay anonymous, and I could stay hidden, and I would never have to reveal myself or disclose my situation. And she thought about it, and the more she thought about it, the better this idea sounded to her. And so she went with that massive group of people all clamoring around Jesus, trying to get close to him. And as she snuck up, she ducked low and she reached down below the garments of everyone else and she just grabbed the hem of his garment. And in that moment, she felt a flash and she knew something had happened to her and she could feel the healing sweeping through her body. And she was elated. Yes, I did it. And just as quickly as she had grabbed his garment, she began to quietly melt back into the crowd. But Christ wasn't fooled. 
And you and I all can relate to her in our own way. She had managed to effectively steal some healing, or at least that's what she she thought she was doing, without knowing the Savior. How many of us are exactly like this woman? We want the healing. We want the salvation. We want the mercy. We want the redemption. But we don't want him to know us. I think that's the situation that all of us struggle with. In her case, it worked. She was healed, and she thought she was going to get away anonymously, and this lasted for all of about five seconds. But then Jesus stopped and began searching the crowd. She wasn't going to get away. And he asked loudly, who touched me? Now she's afraid. Those who were closest to Christ began to pull back, and everyone began to look at everyone else. And there were various declarations of, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. Who touched you? We're all touching you. In fact, Peter stands up with some irritation and says to Jesus, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing you in on every side. Who touched you is a silly question. Everybody's touching you. To which Christ responded, no, no, no. Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And in that moment, the woman realized that she had been caught. You see, it may have even been that as Jesus was speaking these words, he was no longer glancing around at the crowd. He may have just been looking right at her. I know someone's touched me. She had attempted to steal this healing from Christ, but as he gazed at her, she knew the truth. The Lord of Lords knows everything. Dear loved ones, we're not different from her. Every one of us lives with some degree of embarrassment, some degree of shame. And just like her, every one of us at some point in our life, sooner or later, we have all tried to take this gift of salvation without embracing the Savior. We've tried to take the blessing of healing without placing ourselves in the hands of the great physician. And sooner or later, we have all tried at various times to take the atonement for our sins without seeking and savoring and standing in the glory of God. Of God. We would all rather just go our own way and stay anonymous. In fact, it seems that this is increasingly the case, not only amongst the lost and the unbelieving, but it seems to be increasingly the case even within evangelicalism in the church today. We want to have fellowship, we want to be a part of a community. These are buzzwords that we throw around. And then when we turn to the cross, this ancient relic, which still hangs on the front of most of our churches, we want to begin to interpret and understand that cross in a variety of ways. We want to see it as having something to say to us being loved. We want to say, we want to say it has something to do with us no longer being embarrassed. We want to say it has something to do with us needing an example of someone that was righteous whom we can follow. But if we are to understand the righteousness of God, if we're going to understand the gift of God's love, and if we're going to understand the healing that comes to us from Christ, we're going to have to wrestle with the bloody cross. It is indeed bloody. Increasingly, the truth of the bloody cross is abandoned and neglected, but we come today to deal precisely with the blood of Christ. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, 
And he packs the entire gospel into these five short verses, 21 to 26 of Romans chapter 3. And he begins, and I want you to note three things as we work our way through the text this morning. Number one, he says, but now, this is the open bookend of the argument. He says, but now, meaning at this time, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Another way to understand that word is he's saying the righteousness of God has been revealed. It has been made known. It exists. It is here. You can see it. And he says it's been revealed, made known, exists. It's here. You can see it apart from the law. He says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is this righteousness, Paul? What are you talking about? And he begins to unpack it in verse 22. It is, he says, the righteousness of God, meaning it is God's righteousness. It is a righteousness that will equal his righteousness. Wow, that sounds like an incredible deal. And he says it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says there is no distinction, and he unpacks in one short verse what he's been talking about in the preceding three chapters. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, I want you to underline that. Number two, all have sinned and fallen short of glory. He says we are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, So there is redemption in Christ. And he says, God put this redemption forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood. That's the third thing you need to underline this morning. So number one, now at this time. Number two, you need to underline that this is the righteousness of God that he has put forward. He's put him forward, and he has been put forward by his blood. Sorry, number two is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And number three, the righteousness that has been put forward has been put forward in Christ by his blood. So there's no way to understand what's happening on this cross without dealing with blood. Blood is a metaphor common in the Jewish vernacular to stand in the place of sacrifice. This idea of blood is really an idea of sacrifice. And one of the reasons we have to unpack this is because there are many attempts today to diminish the sacrifice and to ignore the blood that Christ shed for us on the cross. To say the cross is merely an example, the cross is merely an expression, that the cross is merely a symbol That is true in all of the senses in which it is stated, but the cross is none of those things if it is not first, foremost, and primarily about the shed blood of Christ. Did Jesus give us an example of what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to God? Yes. Did Jesus show us God's love for us by dying for us on the cross? Yes. These things are true, but meaningless and false if it is not seen first through the shed blood of Christ. If we're going to understand the cross, we need to tell ourselves from the Bible what the story of sacrifice is really all about. When we think of sacrifice, we often think in terms of self-denial, which is ironic because it's, it's ironic because the biblical story of sacrifice actually begins with a colossal failure of self-denial. The sacrifice in the Bible starts with a story of self-indulgence, selfishness. 
When Adam and Eve indulged in their desire to be God's equal, they plunged all of us into a world under sin's curse. And the first sacrifice we see in the Bible was when God, on their behalf, sheds an animal to cover them with some decent animal skins. Up until this point, they'd sewn this fig leaf thing together. And so we hear the term sacrifice. We understand it should be self-denial, and that is true. It is an act of self-denial. But it all starts off with sinful, selfish, God idolatry, making yourself God rather than worshiping the one true God. And as a result of that act, we now live in a world in which sacrifice and the shedding of blood becomes the order of the day. Humanity needs to embrace not just self-sacrifice, not just this idea of being selfless, But what we need to grasp as we look at the scriptures is the story of judicial sacrifice. A sacrifice that will repair the breach in our relationship with God. As the narrative of scripture unfolds, the need, the nature, and the effects of sacrifice are slowly revealed to us over the course of thousands of years. I'm going to, I mean, you can break it up into a number of different periods or, or moments within the biblical narrative of what's, what's happening when different sacrifices are offered. Uh, you know, scholars debate this, theologians debate this. I'm just randomly, from, based on my own study, my own scholarship, I'm just going to break it up into six distinct moments for us today. You can read books that go on for 2,000 pages that argue all kinds of different things, but just to keep it simple, we're going to break the story of sacrifice up into six distinct moments. Moment number one, the first sacrifice offered by mankind to God is that of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, there's no mention of sin, there's no mention of blood. All that is going on with this particular sacrifice is that it's an idea of tribute, You have these individuals created in the image of God. They come bringing their various gifts. They lay them on an altar and they offer sacrifice to God primarily as an expression of tribute. They're signaling to God that they think of him as a king and they want to signify to him that as their king, they're giving tribute to him. And of course, if you remember the story, in that moment, God says, well, I like one kind of sacrifice, but I don't like another kind. There's a certain way you pay tribute to me and there's another way that you're trying to pay tribute, which I'm really not all that impressed with. We can get into the details of the story, but the point is this. In sacrifice... We are offering back to God what is his by right. This isn't us trying to buy God off as equals. He is the king. We belong to him and we pay tribute to him. We give to him what he is owed. That's period number one. Now, period number two, a little later on, we come to Genesis chapter eight. After the flood in which God destroys the whole world because he sees that the intentions of mankind's heart is just sinful always, Noah offers up a variety of clean animals as what the text tells us are whole burnt offerings. The context is thanksgiving, and the fact that they are whole burnt offerings communicates to us this idea that it is a gift because the whole animal is given to God. There's no part of it that's held back. There's nothing we can take home and throw on the barbecue for ourselves. It all is consumed and given over to the Lord. And what is interesting about that sacrifice that Noah makes is that it is described as having an effect on God. It moves his heart. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, it says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he said, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. 
Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, he says, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. The sin that had prompted God's judgment remained in the hearts of Noah and his children and you and me to this day. But God smelled the pleasing aroma of a sacrifice. And his heart was moved such that he made a promise. I won't do this to the earth again. That's what he said. And so what we see in this account is that sacrifices can change the heart of God towards us. This brings us to the third period. Though we hear of the occasional altar being built here and there, the Bible really doesn't record another sacrifice, a meaningful sacrifice, until Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, God speaks these shocking words concerning Abraham's seed through whom he has promised to bless the nations. And he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son. He says it twice, take your son, your only son, as though Abraham didn't know, oh, this is the only kid I have. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Again, as though Abraham didn't know, oh yeah, I love Isaac. That kid you really love, yeah, take him. Just in case you're not sure who I'm talking about, it's the one you love. It's the only one you have. Take him and go to Mount Moriah, he says. Sacrifice him there as a whole burnt offering. In other words, there's no piece of Isaac coming home, Abraham. Your kid, your future, your progeny, all the history that is to follow you, all of you, all that you love and everything that is to come after you, you will give it to me. That's what God is saying. Given Abraham's track record, we're all tempted to think he's about to bail and flee the other direction. But Abraham has grown in his confidence in the Lord. And he believes and he walks in obedience. It sounds horrible, this idea that we're going to give our child back to the Lord. But we understand that this is an act of tribute and lordship. It all belongs to God and he therefore has the right to take it back if he wants to. Even if it's your only son. Even if it's the only son that you really love. At the last second, of course, those of you who are familiar with the story, you know, God stops Abraham and he provides a ram and the test of Abraham's devotion is over, but not the sacrifice. A ram is sacrificed, Isaac is spared, and the story of sacrifice is developed a little bit further. It turns out that God will accept a sacrifice as a substitute. He wants Isaac but he'll take something in Isaac's place. This brings us to the fourth period in the story of sacrifice. The story of Abraham's family continues and sacrifices happen, but the scripture says nothing to us specifically about it. In fact, it kind of fades into the background until we find ourselves several years later, hundreds of years later, the Bible tells us 400 years later in the land of Egypt. So centuries have passed and this idea of sacrifice has faded into the background and Abraham's descendants find themselves as slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh refuses to release the people and so God warns that he will send an angel of death who's going to strike down the firstborn male of every creature in Egypt and now a new sacrifice is introduced and this sacrifice is known as the Passover lamb. 
In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord promises to spare the firstborn if each family takes a year-old lamb without defect, they will sacrifice it and they will smear its blood on the doorframe of their houses. This is not a whole burnt offering in the sense that they burn it completely and give it over to God. Something interesting happens here. They take this lamb, they sacrifice it, but then they begin to eat it. They have to completely devour it, but they take the sacrifice into themselves. God says to them, when you do this, he will see the blood of the sacrifice on the doorposts of your home, and he will spare them from judgment. What's more, God says that this sacrificial meal is going to continue throughout all their generations as a sign to the other nations that sets Israel apart from the other nations. And God makes a distinction between Israel and these other nations And he consecrates them to himself to be his special people. That very night, of course, Israel is spared because of the sacrifice. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Eventually, they arrive at Mount Sinai, where God covenants with them to be their God. And he gives them his law. And that that day in which he covenants with them, they become his holy people. And so we learn something else. There is yet another development in the story. Those who are spared by a sacrificial substitute are now forfeit to God. They belong to God. The story picks up these themes and develops them. When you accept a sacrifice as your substitute, you don't walk free to be whomever and whatever you want. If you're going to accept the sacrifice in order to walk free of God's judgment... Your whole life, as we understand it here in this Passover meal, your whole life is forfeit. You belong to God. You are His. This brings us up until the fifth period in the story of sacrifice. Up until this point, there have been less than a dozen instances of sacrifice. And if you're reading it and you're tracing these themes of of sacrifice, there's less than a dozen. And you could be forgiven for thinking that, yeah, sacrifice is kind of out there, but it's not a major theme. It's not like something that's really, you know, overarchingly there. But all of that changes with the giving of the law. See, an entire book of the Bible, Leviticus, is then written. And the book of Leviticus Leviticus is largely given over to detailing all of the different sacrifices that Israel must offer to God. There are fellowship offerings. There are whole burnt offerings. And there are all kinds of different daily sacrifices and fellowship sacrifices. And the most important of all of these sacrifices which are meant, which are described, of all, the most important of all of these sacrifices are those which are given to atone for sin and guilt. Now all the pieces of the story of sacrifice are starting to come together. Number one, only clean animals can be sacrificed. They have to be perfect, pure, without defect or blemish. Every firstborn Israelite who is a representative of the nation and the firstborn who is a representative of all the future and all the legacy and and the heritage of every person in Israel, every firstborn belongs back to God and must be redeemed with a sacrificial substitute. This is revealed to us in the scriptures. And the idea of substitution, therefore, becomes very prominent. It's the taking of an innocent victim's life, shedding its blood, 
requiring its destruction in order for God's justice to be satisfied. But again, this idea of substitution is prominent. We're told that if anyone brings a sacrifice, he is to lay his hand on the head of this burnt offering. And if he does that, it will be accepted, specifically Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4, it will be accepted on his behalf. God's justice and wrath upon an individual, we learn, is capable of being diverted. It must still be poured out, but it is capable of being diverted to a substitute. But we have to own that substitute. So all of these themes now begin to come into focus. It requires the destruction of a life because God's wrath demands justice. Blood is a metonym or a symbol of that life being taken. And if we would be spared, we must accept the sacrifice, we must offer the sacrifice, but before we do so, we must acknowledge, we must place our hand on that sacrifice and say, this takes my sin, I offer this to God. God, the destruction and the anger and the justice that is mine, you please pour it out on this in my place. And all of this, as we saw from the very beginning, is to be understood as a tribute, what is owed to a king. It's not optional. That brings us to period six. All throughout period five, these sacrifices are offered over and over and over again. Century follows century and nothing changes. No new sacrifices are introduced. The old ones just keep getting endlessly repeated. It's kind of watching the same sitcom over and over and over again. People begin to lull into a sense of boredom and they don't take it seriously and they're not spiritual and they're not thinking about the sin of their heart. They're just going through the motions that repeat over and over and over again. And yet, despite all this, God keeps sending prophets telling them, doing all of these things does not get rid of your sin. You're just repeating it all over again. In fact, they increasingly become nauseating to God. It is a reminder of just how sinful people remain. Through the prophets, God denounces the rote and superficial performance of these sacrifices, which they do over and over again. Repentance, not ritual, is what God wants. And they're not giving him repentance. They're just embracing the ritual. For Israel, repentance had vanished. Ritual was all that remained. And so God banishes the nation into exile. Without the temple, there will be no more sacrifice. And the prayer is given through the prophets that perhaps then the people will learn what God wanted was a true heartfelt commitment to him. When God brings the people back out of exile, back from Babylon, and the temple is rebuilt, sacrifice resumes, but the people have not changed. Other things have changed, but the people have not changed we see in this restoration of the temple that it isn't really all that restored. The Holy of Holies is just an empty room. There's no mercy seat for the high priest to appear before and to plead for forgiveness. There's no Ark of the Covenant. It's just an empty room. One of the great mysteries to me is when the high priest went every year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the so-called mercy seat, what was he sprinkling? 
Every Jew knew it. It wasn't like it was a, a secret. We're doing the ritual without the ritual. <laughs> and it's at this moment that God speaks through Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he declares, Oh, that one of you, one brave soul among you, would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. That's from Malachi 1.10. Chilling words, hey? The only way I get right with God is by offering a sacrifice, and what God is saying to me is, I don't like any of your sacrifices. You might as well shut the doors to the temple and stop doing it. And this brings us to period six. Something really incredible happens. There's a sixth sacrifice that I want to point out to you. It's a sacrifice that is given to us like none before it. And this one sacrifice, it so satisfies, it so pleases the Lord that we don't need any other sacrifice. He will not accept a sacrifice from the hands of his sinful people. And so he loves us and he provides one for himself. He sends his son. And we see a little bit of a reversal in the story of Abraham and Isaac. There he provided a sacrifice for himself in order to save Isaac. Here, He provides a sacrifice for himself in order to save you and me. There's patterns between the story of Abraham and Isaac and the story of Almighty Heavenly Father and Jesus that are similar, but there are things that are dissimilar. God is providing the sacrifice, but this time there's no last-minute substitution. Jesus is our substitute for you and me. That's what the scriptures are telling us. God sends his son. He enters into the world. He takes on flesh. And then he offers his own blood as an acceptable sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me. There at Calvary, Christ fulfills everything that the Old Testament sacrifices meant. He accomplishes what they were, however, unable to do. Through his blood, he makes atonement for the sins of all people. And he reconciles us to God. And to demonstrate that God accepts this sacrifice, he raises Jesus from the dead so that starting immediately and continuing into all of eternity, whoever repents of their sins and places their faith in Christ's sacrifice, which is to say we acknowledge our guilt, but we place it upon Jesus as he goes to the cross in our place. If we would believe in that and if we would embrace Christ and if we would repent of our sins, then Christ's sacrifice redeems us from our slavery to sin and it frees us to live a life, an enduring, ongoing life of tribute and praise to God. See, you belong to him now when you accept Christ as your substitute. And that's the story of sacrifice. There are some patterns in this. One of the things we see is it's kind of like a drum beat. There's a crescendo. It beats slowly at first, and then it starts to beat faster, and then it builds to a climax, and we see that. There are patterns here. 
God is telling us to fix our attention on this. The shedding of blood isn't something we think about every day, but the Bible is obviously extremely interested in it. And we should be interested in it because God is saying the most crucial, most important thing to us through blood sacrifice. There's a crescendo that occurs within this pattern. First, we see Abel's sacrifice is about thanksgiving and tribute. Second, we see that Noah's sacrifice included thanksgiving and tribute, but it also assuaged the Lord in his anger. That's why he destroyed the whole world, you'll recall. Third, we see Abraham and Isaac's episode included all of that, assuaging the anger of the Lord, giving tribute to the Lord, expressing thanksgiving to the Lord, but it also included these ideas of utter devotion and a substitute. And then we see that the Passover sacrifice in Exodus introduces this idea of a spotless lamb who is going to be the representative of the firstborn son, and through the offering of this lamb, there is a distinguishing of a people, a special group from the rest of the world. Then we have all of the Levitical sacrifices emphasized in order to give atonement for sin. And so the pattern continues. Now, you say, okay, Pastor Josh, I get it. What is the point that you're driving at in pointing all of this out to us? Over the years, some have suggested that Christ died, again, primarily as an example for us. Somehow it's supposed to inspire us to a greater love for God. Others have suggested that Christ's death was merely a demonstration of God's hatred for sin. He just is showing how bad sin ticks him off, and so he kills Jesus on the cross. Still others have said that it was a demonstration of his compassion and his desire to be identified with sinners, with you and me. Today we see something else happening, something very troubling. It's happening in our seminaries, in our Bible colleges, The prevailing view among many of our Bible teachers concerning our current context is that presenting Christ's atonement in terms of penalty, in terms of justice, is ineffective at best. And in fact, some go so far as to say that it's really a distortion of the gospel and that if we present Christ's shed blood on the cross, all it's going to do is make people feel bad. In other words, all it's going to do is make you feel ashamed. The categories of law, guilt, punishment, justice, all these categories that are intrinsic to penal substitutionary atonement, allegedly, they argue, allegedly stem from a Western individualistic culture, such as the one we live in, And that these ideas of law and guilt and retributive justice, they won't work in other cultures, such as Asian cultures, such as Eastern cultures. They work here in our individualistic society, but they won't work in an Eastern society in collectivistic cultures that are steeped in categories of honor and shame. And so the argument is made, to understand the gospel, we have to understand that the gospel, if it is to be understood correctly, should, we should see all of the same things in every culture through which we look at the cross. And because we don't have these same categories in Eastern culture, such as you know, law and justice, it's more honor and shame, then these categories that we use to understand the Bible must be incorrect. 
we must be seeing it the wrong way. And therefore, to insist that what Jesus is doing on the cross is a demonstration of justice, if we understand it from an honor and shame context, this is a distortion of the good news. It's, it's, uh, you, you're more familiar with it. We've gone through our own cycles of this here in Western evangelicalism. We have understood it in terms of being a seeker-sensitive church. And the idea is that the pastor is supposed to discern the felt needs, the, the felt spiritual needs of people in the community. And whatever it is that appeals to them, that's what we should be preaching on and teaching on so that they'll say, oh, hey, there's something there for me after all. It's the same idea applied to an Asian context or an Eastern context in which you have individuals who understand their whole life in terms of honor and shame, bringing honor to their family, bringing honor to their father, not doing anything that would cause shame or a loss of reputation. So it's really the same thing. We're framing it in different terms, but it's the same idea. Here we call it seeker-sensitive, consumeristic church. Over there, they say we have to reframe the gospel in terms of honor and shame, but it's the same principle. We're thinking about what this person needs to hear, and we're taking the truth of Scripture, and we're shaping it and molding it and trying to find in it motifs and themes that will speak to that person. And I'm here to tell you that when we do that, if we do that, we take the cross and we empty it of its power. There is salvation in the cross. There is power in what Jesus has done for us. But if we try to conceive of it or to frame it in terms different than the terms that are presented to us in the scriptures, we're the ones making the mistake, not God, us. And if we then present that in an evangelistic message and we don't see any fruit from it, well, we really shouldn't be surprised. The scriptural support that these theologians argue, the verse that they go back to time and again to say, you see, there has to be shame and honor involved in our presentation of the gospel, is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the expression there is that when we say we have fallen short of the glory of God, they frame that in terms of a social construct. Your neighbor is a great guy living next door, and you borrowed his lawnmower to mow your grass, and because he's awesome and you love him and you want to be his buddy, you took that lawnmower and you thought, this is so great. You know, I'm going to take his lawnmower. We're going to build a relationship around cutting our grass. Every Saturday, we'll, it'll be great. He'll cut his grass. I'll borrow his lawnmower. I'll cut my grass. We'll talk across the fence. We'll be buddies. And then whew, you broke his lawnmower. And now he doesn't really want to talk to you so much. And you, he, you go to knock on his door and you say, I'd like to borrow your hedge trimmer. And he's like, yes, it's in the shop. I don't know what's happened to it. And you see him out there early in the morning before he thinks you're awake and he's like trimming his hedges. And you know in that moment you've lost honor. He doesn't respect you. You've become ashamed in his eyes. He is ashamed of you. And they say the gospel needs to be understood in this way. We have fallen short of God's glory. There's a certain standard which those individuals who live in his neighborhood, they have to be at that standard. And therefore, when we present what's happening on the cross, what we need to do is we need to understand it in terms of God giving us back honor. But do you know what's happening in these presentations of the gospel? I would not deny for one second that God puts us back to a right standing. 
But in these presentations of the gospel, the thing that is not mentioned, which is not presented, is the fact that regardless of whether you're proud of who you are or ashamed of who you are, whether you have honor or guilt, you broke the law. You're a lawbreaker. God is a king and his standards were violated. It isn't simply that you accidentally did something that caused your next door neighbor to look at you kind of sideways. You're at war against him. You're at war from your heart. You are attacking the throne of heaven. To minimize it to something as trivial as I broke my neighbor's lawnmower, to reduce down what is happening on the cross in terms of honor and shame is to twist the gospel and to empty of its power. But furthermore, it isn't faithful to the text. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. It says that. Indeed, we're not welcome in his neighborhood anymore. If you want to use that as an illustration, that's acceptable. But remember what the first part of the verse says. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason why this is such a problem, I I have these, I mean, it's a problem for me. It's a problem for you too. But the reason why I'm on this bent today is because I have these neighbors next door, the Sikh temple. And uh, I have immediate neighbors, but then one block over, I've got this Sikh temple. And uh, of course, these are East Indians and and uh, they're, they're coming to Canada from India. And if you know anything about their culture, you understand they're a shame and honor culture. And, uh, and I was reading these articles of these missiologists, and they're like, oh, you can't tell a Sikh that they're a lawbreaker. That would offend them. You need to frame your evangelistic presentation in terms of shame and honor. And they cite this verse, Romans 3.23, and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm preaching Romans 3.23. I've been preaching it for like five weeks now, to be honest. And uh, there's just one little problem with your so-called exegesis. The falling short of the glory of God comes after the sin. And the sin is war against the Lord. So... If you want to come up with a little bit of a better analogy, the reason why your neighbor is looking at you sideways isn't because you broke his lawnmower. It's because you took his lawnmower, you hacked the blade out from underneath it, you picked it up, and now you're trying to hack your neighbor's head off with that blade. Let's frame it in the proper context. And here's really where the rub is. Your neighbor is all-powerful, almighty, holy God. And he can crush you without even thinking about it. And because you have tried to attack him, he will crush you. But you notice that phrase there? In Romans chapter 3, it says, but now. For centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, God has needed to do justice, but he has refrained from doing it. The need for justice remains, and justice is coming But God demonstrates his love. God gives us an example of what it means to love him and have a relationship with him. You see, all these things, honor, shame, all these different categories in which we would prefer to think of the cross are explained in that God doesn't crush us, at least not yet. He crushes Jesus for us. And we can escape that punishment if we would lay our hand of faith 
upon Christ and accept him in our place as our substitute for God's justice to be done. Honor-shame cultures are collectivistic cultures. They prize societal approval and relational harmony. You should never violate the community expectations and therefore draw shame upon yourself or disgrace. But at the end of the day, whether your neighbor loves you, whether you are honored, whether you are disrespected, all of that is immaterial. You have broken the law of God, and he knows it, and you know it. And when I say you've broken the law of God, it isn't that you've simply broken his lawnmower, so to speak. As I said, you're attacking him. You're making war against him. When it says, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you know why it took God centuries and millennia to bring Jesus into the world? Because he wanted us to fully understand what was happening. The same apostle who writes this passage writes for us in Galatians chapter 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, In other words, when the moment was right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He says, when the fullness of time had come. So you're thinking to yourself, what was was needing to happen before that moment arrived? And Paul tells us in the immediate preceding verse, he says, he says, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus. And one of the things we learn from that passage, which is so crucial as we're thinking about gospel presentations in, in Eastern Asian countries or even right here in our own neighborhood, is that even though you may be encountering an individual that has grown up in a different culture, that has a different understanding, one of the things we need to understand is that God built into history an interpretation of an event before that event ever happened. And what's even more fascinating is we look at the story of sacrifices, we look at the story of blood, it happens as far back as Adam and Eve before there was any culture from which they would be shaped. It progresses to their children and to their children's children. It goes down to Noah and then it ends up at Abraham and so forth and so on. We move from being farmers to being ranchers. We go from being country bumpkins to city people. We go from very primitive cultures to very advanced, very sophisticated civilizations. We go from being a nobody to being in the halls of Egypt and the halls of Babylon. And as the story is told, God is repeating the same message. People say Western culture distorts the gospel these ideas of law and justice and rights and blah, 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 blah. No, my friends. The Protestant Reformation happened and gave rise to Western culture. The ideas of law and justice are not culturally derived. They're biblically inscripturated. When we present the gospel to anyone, whether they've been raised in a culture that makes it easier for them to understand it, or whether they've been raised in a culture in which they have to struggle to understand it, God has taken the time across 
thousands of years in order to build into all of these sacrifices and the establishment of Israel and the Levitical priesthood and the writing of the Bible and the recording of Scripture. God has built into all of it the correct understanding. And when that understanding was fully placed within the grasp of humanity through his revelation in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son for you as an individual. Whether you understand yourself as an individual or you see yourself as a part of a family unit, whether your first frame of reference is, I have my own rights and I get to do whatever I want, or whether you think of yourself as belonging to a family and, whoa, you better not do anything to bring embarrassment upon your dad. However you conceive of yourself, God loves you. He may not love your dad in the sense that your dad may never get saved and may never receive his redemption. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. You may say to yourself, I can't ever come to Christ because my family would never come to Christ. Whether or not your family comes, whether or not this decision brings honor to your family or whether it brings shame to your family, the end of time comes and God comes comes with his justice. There is a greater shame that awaits. You cannot think to yourself today, I'll be a quiet Christian, quiet as a mouse, and I'll never tell anyone. I won't tell my mom, I won't tell my dad, and I certainly won't tell my spouse. If you're to stand before the Savior and receive his salvation, he will know you and you must declare him as God. Regardless of whether or not it fits in with your culture or your society, whether it's embarrassing or whether it's honoring, it doesn't matter. This is what is true. You say, that's awfully hard, Pastor. You don't know my family. I don't need to know your family. It's the truth. You come to Christ, and he will save you but he will not let you walk away silently into the crowd. There was a woman who tried that. She tried to get his salvation and to walk silently away, but Jesus knew her and he called her out. She had attempted to steal his healing, but he saw her and he knew the truth. When she knew that she couldn't get away, The scripture tells us quite explicitly, when she saw that she was not hidden, that's what the verse says, she came forward and she meekly said, it was me. She stepped back towards Christ. The crowd parted in tears. She dropped to her knees in front of him and she confessed, I touched you, master. And she poured out the whole truth of who she was to him. And Jesus leaned toward her and he wiped her tears and he said, daughter, Your faith in me has made you well. Go in peace. This is where faith comes in. The third thing in our text this morning, we receive this propitiation by faith. You're all in. You completely trust him. You understand he is the Lord, that he knows what is right. You understand that all his ways are good and true and justice, and you believe in him. You place your faith, your confidence, your hope, your trust entirely in him. And that means he can call you forth out of the crowd if he so desires. He can present you in front of the world if he so chooses. You, in accepting 
Jesus have placed your whole life into his hands. That was the trade that was made. And if that wasn't your trade, then you did not make that deal with Christ. She comes forward. And what we see is that Jesus wipes away her tears. And he loves her. This woman who had tried so hard to keep her healing a secret was required to confess in front of everyone. Why? The Bible actually gives us the answer. This is the answer for you today. If you're struggling to make your faith known, you must make it known, and Jesus might display you in front of the whole world. And your question is, why would he do it? And here's the answer. In that moment, Jesus did not expose her weakness and shame. He exposed her faith in him. Jesus, the great physician, has the power to heal us from every sin, every weakness, every failure, every illness, and he promises this healing to everyone who believes in him. Faith pleases God, Hebrews 11.6, and faith alone receives the grace of God. Do you want deliverance from your shame? Ironically enough, it means you've got to start having a higher regard for the opinion of God than the opinion of the world around you, and it starts with faith. If you believe in him, Jesus might just display you in front of the world. But he turns what you think to be shame into a showcase of his love and mercy and grace. And there's no shame in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we say thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, the world tries in a thousand different ways to take the good news and to turn it into something weird. They take all of the tangents and try to make those things the primary and most ultimate. But one thing we see today, if we would be made right with you, we must accept the blood of Christ by faith. If there are any here who have never trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins, if they're trying to conceive of their walk in terms of the culture in which they grew up in or in terms of the family in which they were raised, I pray you would shatter those notions and help them to see that it is against you that their issue is, that their primary issue is that they have sinned against you. And help them to give themselves to you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.